If you're looking for inspiration and challenge in the world of early years and key stage one education, then you've just found it. Welcome to the Early Excellence Podcast. everybody, Andy Burt here. Welcome along to episode 58 of the Early Excellence Podcast. This week we are joined by Ben Kingston-Hughes. Now Ben is a writer, he's a keynote speaker and trainer, he's an author as well and he's really, really interesting to listen to. Um, he joined me for a conversation, we talked about all sorts of different things. In fact, the conversation takes many twists and turns as all the best conversations do. Um, but what runs right the way through the conversation that we had is the vital importance of early childhood. Really getting it right in the early years is crucial. And that comes across loud and clear in the chat that we had. So here's my conversation with Ben Kingston Hughes. It is lovely to see you, and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, how are you? Okay, you well? Yeah, good, thank you. My whole family's ill, but I'm not. So um, there's oh. been this strep throat going around. A lot of nurseries oh, yeah. are struggling with it as well. But yeah, all, my whole rest of my family are off, off school or work. Uh, but touch wood, I seem to have avoided it. So um, yeah. You're doing well. You're doing well. Although I had a similar situation with COVID where everybody else in our house got COVID, and then I was sort of starting to brag about it. And then <laughs> no, 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 I think once you start to brag about it, you know your time is up. Really, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. sort of talking about how, uh, yeah, they they ought to get in touch with me as some kind of you know superhuman <laughs> COVID resistor. <laughs> that's then, taking the bragging a step further, isn't yeah. it? That's, well, that's not bragging. Oh yeah, I'm superhuman. <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of saying, well, maybe Chris Whitty ought to get in touch with me, kind of thing. Yes, but yeah. yeah anyway, anyhow. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for joining us. Um, we're going to be talking about, of course, the vital importance of the early years and of earliest teachers and earliest practitioners, because we don't get we, we don't talk about the importance enough. I think I don't you know, we often I think when it comes to when it comes to sort of the well, sometimes what in the press or certainly if you're working a school, I think you sometimes feel as the earliest teacher that you're not really the most important person on site. And yet, actually, we really should. So we're going to be talking all about that, aren't we? Um, yep. Just before we do get on to that, um, I need to tell people, of course, that you are coming to Early Excellence to deliver a conference for us that we're really excited about. Um, you're coming um, at the end of March. Um, to deliver a conference and also uh, to deliver a live webinar for us as well. And I'll give more information about that at the end of the podcast. Okay. Um, in terms of in terms of today, really, we're going to talk about, as I say, the importance of the early years and of, and of early years teachers and practitioners. Before we get on to that, can you give us an idea of where this all started for you? Because I know you've been working in the early years for 30-something years, is that right? 30, yeah, 32 years now. Um, yeah, it's, as origin stories go, it's a bit of a weird one. I was um, 
I was actually um, kicked out of university, um, so I, I failed miserably. Um, I now know I have ADHD, so that might explain it. Um, obviously, there was also an element of not doing any work and, you know, going out drinking and all the stuff that, you know, used to happen at university uh, before you had to pay so much for university that you wouldn't dare risk your place. Um, but uh, but basically, I, di I didn't respond well to this this course, didn't get on, and I, and I effectively got kicked out. About the same time, I, I moved out of home, uh, living in Leicester, and uh, got fired from a succession of jobs and was pretty much making a hash of my entire life. I was, I was really not doing well. Um, and then um, I saw an advert for an inner city project working with children. And this project worked with children pretty much of all ages. So they had an under, under fives department in the morning, after school section, and then a youth section. Um, and I ended up working for all three of these sections simultaneously. Um, and I went for six weeks and uh, 13 years later, I was deputy manager of the place and uh, and I was actually effectively managing it as well because um, the actual manager was off for, for an extended period of time. So it kind of changed my life. Um, I was, yeah, so really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Wasn't good at anything. Um, and then out of nowhere, just this job working with children and I, I, I genuinely transformative and I've done it ever since and I'm not ever going to stop doing it. So, um, so yeah, I don't know what would have happened if I'd not found that job. Um, I then went on to do a degree and, uh, and a, subsequently an MA uh, and paid for myself to go through all of those. It was weird though, even at the time, I kept thinking when I get my MA, I'll get my proper job. And, um, and it was, you know, my parents just thought I was messing about. You know, we talk about the value of, of you know, early years. We're working with children in general. And, you know, I, I believe my dad thought that, you know, what's he doing this for? When's he going to get a proper job? You know, he's going to have a family and whatever and a mortgage one day. But, yeah, I, I realized quite soon um, that this was my proper job. And, uh, yeah, I've done it ever since. So, <laughs> yeah, done all yeah. sorts of qualifications after starting it. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's in really interesting. Uh, yeah, it's interesting what you were saying about that kind of proper job kind of thing as well. Yeah. You know, the people, yeah. I think you're right. I think people sometimes don't see it as kind of what you will plan to do eventually. They see it as yeah. sometimes a, a kind of a middle, a, you know, a stepping stone sort of thing. I, I have quite once... a few friends who were very, very um, successful uh, in their mm. early careers. So sitting around, you know, in a pub with friends who were like research scientists, for, you know, who'd got a first imperial you know, physics college or whatever. What friend of mine worked in London as a futures buyer and got like a, the, the wage he was on was just astronomical. And I'm sat there on, you know, almost minimum wage. Uh, but I still, I still felt I was onto something because I, you know, the life experiences that the, that I had of, of supporting some of the most vulnerable children to have the best time ever felt worthwhile. Whereas, you know, yeah, the, the hundreds of thousands of pounds a year that they were earning. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, I don't know, but but obviously that's the problem, isn't it? We have an early years um, industry where some people are paid minimum minimum wage, where their impact on a child is more than any other teacher that child's ever going to have, including secondary school, including university yes. lecturers. So it's completely reversed how it should be. And, you know, I think that's the problem. I think it's why we lose so many really good early years workers um, is, is because you, you can't feed a family you know that's that's mm. the issue the only reason i left working at the place i did work at vowed i'd never leave um was because i had a, a child on the way i'd got a new house i've got a mortgage and um, a big charity wanted me to work for them as a national strategic officer working all around the country and i just looked at the pay and thought i can't not do that 
you know, it was, yeah. it was awful. But the, the best thing about this job for the charity was that I, got, I still got to work with children as well. So it was, a, yeah. it was a kind of mixed role where I worked with local authorities at strategic level, you know, writing play strategies and, and looking at how we can improve things for children. One, one nice job I got was to try and persuade local authorities to take down uh, no ball games signs um, on bits of green <laughs> land just so that children could actually use a ball. Um, yeah. which was, you know, so, but I also got to do lots of children's projects as well. Again, working with all ages, so from early years all the way up to youth. Um, and yes, yeah, so I spent a few years doing that. And then um, change of government, all of the money was ripped out at the heart of a lot of these projects. Um, uh, there was just no funding. So this agency made everybody redundant. They just took the entire team. And at the time, we'd been the most successful team they'd ever had in terms of fundraising, in terms of pro high profile projects. But they didn't even look at that. They just made us all redundant. And I think the rest of the team just went and did other jobs. And I thought to myself, well, like, this is the only thing literally I'm good at. So I set up for myself, picked the kind of the bits I enjoy the most about the working for the charity. So the working with children and the working with adults who work with children. And so 11 years ago, I set up my own company. Um, and since then, we just we just support vulnerable children wherever we can. And I do training and the conferences like the one I'm doing for you guys. So yeah, you, uh, yeah so that's my entire career in a nutshell. It is. You're a busy bloke. It's fair to say you yeah. do a lot of different things there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. the biggest problem with this job is that it's six days because if you work for a nursery setting, they can't do an evening. They've they've been there since mm. six in the morning. I mean, we do still do some evenings if if they want, but most of them we want a Saturday. So my Saturdays book up months and months in advance because it's the only day that a nursery setting can do that. And when you add together the schools and, and all the other places that I do work for, yeah. yeah, it does get very busy, but you know. No, but good and, and rewarding as well, I should think. Yeah. You know, I know I, you do I, a lot of work around supporting uh, vulnerable children. So the yeah. work must be incredibly rewarding. Oh, imagine. some of the, I mean, <laughs> as I get older, I get kind of cynical and a bit jaded and I'm driving to a children's session and I'm grumpy, I'm miserable, I'm giving up my time, it's <laughs> raining. And every single time I get there, I'll meet their child or I'll see something happening that just makes me, just reminds me why I do this job in the first place. And, and I see week in, week out, some of the most profound things ever, just with children being able to be children again. Um, mm. And it, yeah, it's, I, I, I did, um, uh, a panel discussion at Nursery World recently, and um, and the speakers there were just so articulate and, and incredible, and and you know just just the best of the best in in early years. And I'm not quite like that. My my brain doesn't work as in, in terms of that kind of situation. But the one thing I do know is that I see it. So all of you can't always articulate how amazing this early years practice is, but when you see it week in week out, and it actually mm -hmm. changes children's lives, that's and that's the perspective I, I look at it from. So, um, yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. And that, of course, is what we're going to look into in more depth, isn't it? So um, when we're talking about the importance of the early years, one of the things that we've got to really focus on, of course, is play. Now, yeah. I, I was doing my research for the meeting for our, our chat today and um, I watched a clip, this great clip of you, a, a quick a kind of a five minute clip, basically, of you of you really going for it. The energy in the clip was fantastic. I was a little bit worried because I, I, people who I work with talk about me as somebody who's got a lot of energy and I kind of, <laughs> I think can be a bit much sometimes. And I was watching the clip of you with all, with the energy and I was thinking, blimey, both of us together, we <laughs> break the internet. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but, but yeah, you were talking, what I loved, there was one bit of it particularly that stood out for me and it was, you talked about play and when children are engaged in play, 
that really high level play you said it's like a virtual firework display going on in the brain and i yeah. love that i love that and i wondered whether you wouldn't mind explaining or kind of exploring that with us for a little bit if that's all right yeah no of course i, I would just say on the, on the energy side of it um I'm, I'm a very odd person in that when i'm doing things like that people think i'm this kind of, I don't know, confident person. And I, I'm, in real life, I'm not that at all. And so I do these conferences in front of hundreds of people and, I, and I've got this kind of persona that I can put on because I know how yeah. important the messages are that I'm getting across. But then, you know, come and talk to me in the break in a one-to-one -one situation and you'll be quite disappointed because I'm actually not. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, you know, uh, I have social anxiety. I, I know yeah. I panic in social situations. But weirdly, I, I don't get nervous when I'm speaking in front of large crowds of people because I... I, I it, it, it originally um I, I was asked to speak in front of five thousand people at a big protest rally and the only reason i did it was because all of the deputies and the managers of all of the the places in leicester city none of them could could do it even even people that are, sounded really confident even the people that knew their stuff and would have been brilliant but not one of them said i can't i'm not doing that and mm -hmm. i'm looking around a room of like 20 people and i said well somebody's got to somebody's got to speak up for the children somebody went well you you do it then so i ended up speaking in front of five thousand people and wow. when you've done that, you kind of, you can do anything. Really. You can't, of course you can. Yeah, in, yeah. in real life, I'm just a little bit odd and awkward. <laughs> no, but I know what you mean. I think there is a different thing that happens. Yeah. It's almost like sort of kind of, I suppose, a, a, like you say, a persona, a character yeah. almost. Yeah. There's a different thing that happens. I, yeah, similar uh, kind of thing with me, really. I, when I worked within schools as, a, as an earliest teacher within a school, when it came to a staff meeting and the whole... <laughs> staff would be there not huge staffs but say 20 people all within the same room and there was me in one corner of the room i would very rarely be the person who would be confidently speaking out within a staff yeah. which it's sounds funny, ridiculous now when i think that actually i do deliver training and you know talk to quite large groups of people but it's a different persona i think there's a different thing that goes yeah. on yeah. Well, with the ADHD diagnosis, the clinical psychologist I was working with was talking about strands of autism as well in, in my personality. And that, that does kind of explain the, the, the weird social awkwardness that, that mm. I do get genuinely um, when I'm talking to people. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just just part of me now. No, it's <laughs> so. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, th I think um, people are m much more open to talking about kind of their own kind of where they where they are at you know, in terms of sort of neurodiversity and yeah. you know, that kind of that kind of being able, able to say, well, actually, this is me you know, kind of thing. And, and you know, this is this is what this is. This is very typical of me in terms of my yeah. what, I, what I do do or what I don't do. You know, I might go off on tangents or I might, you know, or whatever else. And, and yeah. I think people are very open to that now. Yeah, I've only just started last couple of years of being open about stuff like this because it's mm. kind of I come from the generation that's slightly embarrassed about it. Yeah. Right. Um, and I've been recently telling a story about social anxiety, which is just one of those things that, that happens, you know, to me regularly but the, um, it's amazing how many people come up to me and, and say oh that's me or i'm mm -hmm. really glad you said that because because I, I feel that as well and it's also helped me change my training as well because i've realized that actually as as trainers we do a lot of stuff that makes our learners feel uncomfortable 
And this mm. is working with adults now. So with children, you know, obviously we'd never do some of this stuff, but, but the let's go around the room, say our names and say a bit about ourselves. You know, it's such a simple thing, but how many times have you been on training where you've waited for your turn and it's like a circle of death. So by the time it gets to me, I don't know my name. I just blurt rubbish out of my mouth. And, and that, that anxiety level isn't conducive to learning. And, yeah. you know, when we put people on the spot and make them do role play when they're clearly not comfortable doing it. So mm. when I do my training for adults, I've tried to make it training that I could sit through. So um, I don't do anything that, well, I try and avoid anything that makes people feel anxious. I make sure that it's very short sections of learning and then we move on to, you know, something that's more practical. I try and cater for a whole, you know, group of learners. Um, but then when my 15 year old son comes back from secondary school and he, and he describes how learning is done for him, it, it makes you want to cry because it's mm. just sit still and listen to the grown up. Mm. And yet, you know, training adults, you know, that's not the most effective way of doing it, but. You know, yes. Yeah. We're getting very sidetracked. We are um, getting a bit sidetracked, but it's all interesting stuff. It's, it's yeah. all interesting stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, going back onto it then, the firework, um, display. firework display in yeah. the brain. So I think that, that actually, is, that, if you wanted a title for your next book, I think yeah. that's, a, that, that's an amazing title. I would say firework well, display then, in the brain. I'd buy that. The next the next book is uh, is due. The deadline is April the first, and uh, it's it's very challenging. This next book. So obviously, I've written a book about play, and that's yes. a hard sell in itself. But my second book is about joy, and I, I cannot stress how frustrating this is because I, it's something I see week in week out with children, and I see it changing lives. Little moments of joy that they've never experienced on children, you know, for some of them for their entire life, and then it's absolutely ignored. It's not mentioned yeah. in any curriculum documents. It's not mentioned in the EYFS. It's not mentioned. It's just a completely almost swept under the rug that this is a vital part of childhood. Cool. So I've got to try and convince people that I'm not having a midlife crisis and telling everyone <laughs> to hug a tree. It's actually a concrete process. And yeah, it's yeah. just as a complete aside, but as part of that, yesterday, uh, sorry, last Friday, I was researching humour. And I honestly, if you actually unpick sense of humour, we use humour way more than we would ever use maths or history or any yeah. of the stuff that we, we really focus upon. And yet it's not even mentioned once, isn't humour? It, it's actually crushed in, in young people yeah. sometimes because the funny child in the class is the, per, is the less desirable child. When actually yeah. when you look at the, the kind of the thought processes and the imagination that goes into just being funny and you think we use humour you know, to, to entertain, but we also use it to get over negative experiences. We use humor. It's a whole industry. So we use it as, as, as something that millions of people will, will watch, you know, on television, but also something that almost everybody uses when they're in a social gathering. It's, it's a key social process. And yeah. yet it's not even mentioned on the UFS. Yeah, you're you right. Know. It's how we connect with people, isn't it? Yeah. It's, as it's a human being, that's how we connect with people. Yeah. And you that? could argue way more important than maths is just the development of, of a positive sense of humor and in early years you know children's humor is going to be about poo isn't it i mean that's just you know you can't expect a three-year-old to use complex wordplay or or you know biting political satire can you do? because <laughs> that's just the age they're at and yet we do sometimes hear adults going oh don't be so rude well no it isn't rude it's a child who's using a, a, a developmental step on the road to a sense mm. of humor and that sense of humour is going to stand them in more stead than any amount of learning, you know, maths or, or literacy, because that's the bit that helps us become social human beings. So, yeah, that's, you know, so back, sorry, back to the firework display. <laughs> it's all good stuff. Don't apologise. Well, it's, it's all good stuff, then. 
Yeah, I, I, I read a study, and um, I'm, going, I'm doing this from memory. So um, there was a study by the, Dar the college, Dar Dartmouth College and the lead scientist, uh, Alex Schlegel. Now, I think I've got that right, but I apologize if I haven't. And it was just looking at imagination in the brain. And his, he was quoted as saying, a firework display of activity in the brain. So when I started to look into the, the benefits of play, um, I was looking at something called experiential brain growth. So experiential brain growth is is the, the most kind of um, used current model of how the brain grows in that, of course, there are natural stages the brain will go through as the child develops. But actually, if you leave that brain unattended in a dark room like a mushroom, it doesn't happen. It has to have experiences. It has to have experiences through the senses to make that brain grow. So in essence, you have to use your brain for it to be able to grow. So play gives such a broad range of experiences from even simple things like playing hide and seek one day, digging a hole, pretending your puppet's got a voice. All of these broad range of experiences activate so much of the brain, it makes play potentially the most powerful brain growth tool that we will ever use because it uses so much of the brain. So just like those studies of imagination, if a child is playing, their brain is lighting up like a firework display because it's using so much of their brain just in the simplest types of play. So that's kind of the first, the first step on understanding how important early years is because it's early years when the most accelerated time for brain growth happens. It's never gonna happen again. And, and this is the thing people forget about, about early years is that a lot of the, the processes that take place in early years can't happen later. It's too late. And that's the key. What you're doing in early years is setting the foundation for every bit of brain growth and development and learning that child is ever going to have. And if you get that bit right, then all the other stuff can fall into place. But if that bit's not got right, got right, everything else could struggle. So that fire display of activity just describes just how much of the brain you're actually using when you engage in simple moments of play. Yeah. And it transcends yeah. the entire brain from the kind of really physical jumping and climbing and rolling, play fighting and all of that to the really complex stuff that animals can't do, the, the imagination stuff. You know, dogs and cats just you know they've got play we can play with our dogs and cats and they'll chase a ball and you know i do think it's funny that like all mammals can play so you know dogs and cats chase balls around the field why is it only humans that we pay millions of pounds for chasing a ball around a field why don't we pay dog i mean i would pay good money to see an fa cup final between labradors and cats that would be awesome wouldn't it it would i would yeah but then play lifts into that unique bit that the dogs and cats can't do and one of the examples I gave in the book is that, you know, a chimpanzee is an incredible problem solving brain, but they don't have those frontal lobes. That's a weird mutation in humanity that happened probably 200,000 years ago. Nobody knows why, but they don't have that self-aware bit. So the chimpanzee can use a stick as a weapon and as a tool, but no chimpanzee can ever pick up a stick and go expelliarmus. <laughs> they don't have that architecture in the brain and it's that frontal lobes and play takes in that as well. So mm. what you've got is an entire brain workout yeah. And remember, using the brain grows it, and early years is the best time ever to grow that brain. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's the firework display of activity in the brain. That's what play does every single day. Which, yeah, inc which is incredible to think about, isn't it? That, that that actually that happens within that, particularly within the early years as well. The time sensitivity yeah. of it, I think, is the key, isn't it? That time sensitivity, and of course, that I think is 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 very much what the Department for Education are aiming for when we talk about, you know, the prime areas of learning and then the specific areas of learning, the prime areas yeah. being the ones that are the time sensitive parts. 
yeah. I still don't feel like we focus enough on that. You know, when, when I work with schools, for example, you know, quite often the the timetable is very much about about areas that are not necessarily prime areas. The, the thing is, uh, th- there's an argument that a lot of the stuff that we focus on is the wrong focus. Mm. And, and I know I'm not having a go at maths at all. I, I actually, I, you know, I think maths is, no, is amazing. I actually yeah, quite, quite yeah. like, I, I'm not, I don't have maths anxiety myself. I work with a lot of people who do though. Um, mm. But actually, when you unpick what makes humanity successful, having the maths is brilliant. It, you know, it really mm. helps. But if you haven't got the imagination to apply that maths, that's all it's mm. ever going to be is arithmetic. Mm. And it's the same with, with grammar. And, you know, I know, I know lots of words, but that's not why I've written a book. That's not the motivation. What helped me write the book was the imagination to put those words in a certain order to, to write. And that's the bit we don't focus on enough. We don't focus on the imagination and creativity. That's seen as almost like secondary and, and almost like, you know, brushed under the carpet. So things like art and drama and music are, are always mm. going to be secondary to maths and science. But the, the trouble is it's, it's the creativity that takes that other stuff to the next level. So yeah. I think that's something that was really missed in current education is, is just the fact that imagination and creativity changed the world, yeah. whereas knowing arithmetic doesn't. And that's not having a go at maths, I, I promise. I, you know, I think maths teachers do a brilliant job and you know, it is a hard subject to teach. And I just think that it, it should be just as valuable should the creativity and the imagination yeah. as well. Um, yeah. yeah. Yes, no, agreed, agreed. Um, Move, changing tack slightly, the other thing that I really wanted to talk to you about was life expectancy. Mm. Not, not of, of us, but, but of, of young children. Young children within the early years, I think, from, certainly the work that we do with young children in the early years is incredibly important, not just for, of course, for that period of their lives. Yeah. And, you know, not just even for their time within primary or their time within secondary. You know, studies have shown, of course, those longitudinal studies like the EPSI study have shown that the importance of early childhood education and the impact on secondary school yeah, yeah. education yeah. and so on and, 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 and life chances. But actually life expectancy and kind of what we get out of life, actually, yeah. I think that's you know, it's, it's incredible. It's incredibly powerful to think about early years education yeah. and the impact of it on life expectancy and life chances. I think. Can you tell yeah. us a bit more about that? Well, the life expectancy stuff just—it it just comes from that realization that you can't build the strong, healthy body, brain, skeletal system, respiratory system, cardiovascular system. You can't build that in adult life. Mm. It's genuinely too late by then. The only time you can build that is as you're developing. And again, what we're looking at in early years is the most accelerated time in their life for developing the strong, healthy brain, body, and, you know, all of that other stuff that, that they're going to need for the rest of their life. So even simple things like, you know, your heart health. Heart health is, is the, the biggest criteria for life expectancy. And you build the strong, healthy heart that you need for the whole rest of your life. You build it in early childhood and you build it through using it and you use it through the physical play that you instinctively do as a child. The running around stuff, the crawling, the jumping, the skipping, all of that. And so, you know, you've got a huge criteria for life expectancy that is built through physical play. Um, and when we look at statistics on sport, for instance, a lot of children disengage in sport and that's not anything against sport. You know, sport is amazing. It can be life affirming and transformative for some people, but play is the one discipline that engages all children because it's not about being good at stuff. It's not about winning or losing. It's just about the joy of the moment. 
um, actually we use play to re-engage children who've already disengaged in physical activity or are at risk of obesity or, or, or you know, health associated health conditions. And we, we just get them back into play through, back into physical activity just by not caring if they're fast or slow or strong or good, just having fun. And one of the classic examples of that is, is uh, water slides. You set out a water, water slide for children, they will run at full sprint to go down a water slide, but it doesn't matter whether they're, you know, at risk of obesity or if, or not, because what they're doing is they're running because it makes the water slide more fun, not because the grown-up has told them they've got to run. And that is the difference. Where, that's where play steps it up a notch and can engage every single child. So, yeah, heart health, um, your lung health, respiratory system, best defense against COVID was apart from vaccination, having a strong respiratory system in the first place. And you build that in childhood. You build it through all of the stuff you do that work, your heart and your lungs, your bone health from jumping off stuff, climbing off stuff, skipping, handstands, cartwheels, all the stuff that gets banned in, in some environments. You know, you can't do cartwheels um, because, you know, that is... One, uh, the school recently said that they banned cartwheels because they would only allow them in a, in a proper gymnastics class. And, and I was trying to argue that, you know, cartwheels existed long before we called it gymnastics. Yeah. And I think that's that's the problem sometimes with sports is that it's appropriated human physical movement in a way that means that you now think you can't do it if you're not good at sport. You know, running and jumping and skipping and hopping, all of that existed long before, you know. Um, I have, I have um, suggested in my, um, my new book um, that the Olympic Games because it focuses, it, it, because the role models we see in sport tell us that you've got to be super fit, super thin, super, you know, strong. And as a five foot six bloke, I'm never going to be as fast as Usain Bolt. It doesn't matter how much I train. And I, it, what that unfortunately doesn't do, it shows children that, that there's some people who are good at physical activity and some people aren't. So I think with the Olympics, we should broaden it so that there are more events. So I think um, two events that should go on there are um, spinning around till you feel sick event. I think that would be a good one. Um, and pretending you're a worm. I think that would be a really nice event. And if they <laughs> include those, then then if children could see that physical activity is for everybody, not yeah, just yeah. for the young fit sports coach that comes in and does sport once a week. Um, so I'm getting sidetracked, but yeah, uh, the early physical movements intrinsically linked life expectancy because they give so many of those criteria and early years being the best time to do it. And actually, if you get to adulthood, you can't, you, there's no second chances. The only second chance with heart health is if you get a heart transplant. So yes. yeah, this is vital stuff that, that children are doing. Yeah. I think you've opened up a whole new thing there. I think, I think asking children to come up with the, the kind of the Olympic standards, yeah. you know, what, what would, what would be, be, um, be focusing on would be quite interesting i think they'd come up with all sorts of interesting things wouldn't they i think if we just accept people come in all shapes and sizes and so we shouldn't expect every mm. child to be able to win a running race or you know or throw something far because we're, we're different and they shouldn't be that shouldn't be that child is less worthy than another mm. i can't kick a ball i'm rubbish at football i'm, I'm probably the worst footballing I'm a qualified football coach, but I'm probably the worst at football of any football coach in the country. Um, I, I did my coaching qualifications because I, because I had a girls team that I was supporting and they, nobody else would do it. So I, I took my coaching qualification. They were all better than me. In fact, a few of them went on to play for national teams, those, those girls. And I can take no, no, you know, pride in that at all because they were better than me when they were six years old. But, you know, I think that's it. I think children need to, to know that it, sport isn't for just the fit. Yeah. you know healthy people it's for everybody yeah. it um, becomes anyway. a bit sort of elitist doesn't it to a certain extent 
I don't yeah. think it's deliberate. I think, I mean, you know, obviously the fastest runners are going to be in the Olympics. I'm not suggesting that, mm. that we get, you know, get, we get me in the, in the 100 meter sprint. But I just think that if that's constantly saturating a child's, you know, experience of what physical activity means in that, you know, footballers are always obviously the, the height of physical fitness, athletes. And I mm. think that's not taken into account that how broad humanity is. Yeah. And, and I think that's why so many of us disengage because it's made to, we're made to feel rubbish about our ability when actually mm. the ability shouldn't matter. Usain Bolt is, is yes, of course he's competitive, but he runs because he loves running. You can see it mm. in his face. Mm. You know, when he's coasting past a bunch of people and they're flat out and he's still in third gear, <laughs> you can see the joy. And I think that's what's missing. I think, you yeah. know, and again, writing a book about joy, I've just done a whole chapter on this yeah. about how if we can inject more joy into physical activity, you'd get more children engaged. Yeah. And it wouldn't matter that they were the best or the worst because they and, enjoy it. And also, I think young children do have that natural joy in being physical. You know, yeah. There is that sort of, you know, when children run or skip or jump or, you know, there is that real enjoy. You can see it in their faces, can't you? You can see the yeah. enjoyment there. It's not because they've been asked to do it or told to do it, but because actually they just want to explore, you know, what their body can do and the space yeah. it takes up, you know, and, yeah. and it can spin around and it can, you know, we're exploring what I've got here. You know, that yeah, kind of thing. instinctive behaviors that they're, they're in a primitive part of the brain that's, mm. that's there specifically to make you the strongest version of yourself. If you walk mm. past a short little wall with a two or three year old, they're going to balance on the wall until yeah. the adult goes, oh, get down from there because we're worried about what the, the house owner or the neighbor will think. <laughs> when actually that is fundamentally important for developing that child's balance, which again is another very useful survival <laughs> skill because it helps you fall over properly so that you don't injure yourself. Um, so yeah, I, I did um, a talk on risk and challenge at Nursery World last week. And that mm. was all about the fact that, you know, if we take away these opportunities for children to, to do that very slightly risky stuff that tests their limits, that makes them understand danger, we actually take away their ability to cope with that in adult life. Yeah. And, and we could be increasing their risk of injuries because now in adult life, they don't know how to fall to mitigate the damage. Like, like we all learned in the 1970s because we were falling out of trees, you know, we, all the time. Um, those yeah, of us right. who survived, <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a real irony, I think, sometimes in that kind of approach to risk, in the in that actually, yes, we we are trying to keep children safe by keep getting them off the low wall, perhaps. Yeah. But actually, in the long run, you're not actually make you're not keeping no. them safe or safer, really. Well, children, yeah. children are much lower to the ground, so if they fall, there's less impact, and mm -hmm. they, their bones are not yet fully bone. A lot of them they've got cartilage, which means their bones bend. My wife took my daughter ice skating um, about six months ago, and my daughter fell over. She's, she was 10. She fell over a few times before she got the hang of ice skating. Absolutely fine. My wife fell over once and then fractured her arm in two places. Ouch. And, you know, she, she was in plaster for six weeks. I mean, she's fine now. Don't worry. <laughs> but, you know, that's that. You've got to learn to fall when you're my daughter and younger because mm -hmm. that will help you when you're older. Whereas yeah. if you leave it and you don't, that's it, you know. Yes. Yeah. No, important, important messages, I think. Really important messages, um, which brings us on to divergent thinking. Divergent yeah. thinking. Um, what I always find really interesting whenever I talk to somebody who is really involved in neuroscience is that is the way that neuroscientists will always talk about the, the plasticity of the brain. Or the, mm. you know, the, the, the way that actually, you know, nothing is set. Uh, and, uh, you know, when we're talking about working with young children, 
nothing really is set you you this this is something you the the brain is something that actually can be formed at that point can be uh can be is developed so much is developing so much at that point that actually you know it's it's changing and and developing all of the time and i think yeah. that's so important when we work with young children yeah. that we keep that in mind that actually we haven't got a child here who well they're not going to be able to do anything you know on entry or whatever else you know that's it that's that child that's not just it at all you know we've got right. such a lot we can do with any child i think i, I think, think that's perhaps the, the, one of the biggest omissions in in education for young children is that that when a child learns anything even mm. you know from from a mathematical you know concept to standing on one leg absolutely anything that's a physical structural change to the brain that mm. is an architectural change that that then leads on to more development more connections and more changes in the brain so it's not just filling up a database with information it's not just giving children knowledge it's fundamentally changing the shape of their brain and if you give children positive experiences then that will shape the brain in a very very different way to negative experiences of learning and that's the shape of the brain that's then going to go from early years into primary into secondary so what you're doing is you're laying the foundations for learning for the rest of that child's life and there's a lovely phrase that I, I, I talk about quite a lot, but it's neurons that excite together, wire together. And it's to do with the fact that children's brains, well, adults as well, but children make associations. And if you start associating a positive feeling or a positive reward with an aspect of learning, for instance, over time, if that experience is repeated, those neurons excite together, they start to wire together. So that you're creating these neural networks of association, which means that child starts begins to want that learning because they've already associated positive feelings with learning and over time the best thing about that is it becomes hardwired a structural change in the brain that means the child automatically associates positive feelings with learning and that will become hardwired and once it's hardwired the child's capability in that aspect of learning massively increases and then the desire for more of that learning increases and it, that's the cycle of learning as it should be so in early years you should be setting up a brain for a child that wants to learn and that's a structural change that becomes hardwired. The child then goes to primary school. The child now is just eager for more learning. That experience is repeated and is positive. That in further embeds those positive neural networks of positivity and learning. And that's, that's lifelong learning, isn't it? That's your growth mindset in a nutshell, a structural change in the brain that means you automatically associate positive feelings with, with aspects of learning. And unfortunately, yeah. we forget that, don't we? And we give children negative learning experiences feelings of humiliation, feelings of shame when they've not done as well as another child has maybe on a test. And that again, starts to create those, those associations, but they're not positive associations anymore. And that actually changes the structure of the brain for a child so that they now automatically associate negative feelings with learning. And that's the, the enemy of a growth mindset. You know, that's stagnating in terms of a child's learning and development and it's structural change in the brain. It's, it's basically your, your, in early years, you're wiring up your child's brain for their, for their learning for the rest of their life. Yes. Um, which I and, don't and, know the question you asked, but. <laughs> no, no, that's what I was gonna, just about to say that. So, so yes, yeah, so we've, we've got those changes to the brain, of course, in terms of, you know, hardwiring for learning those positive, uh, those, those positive thoughts and positive feelings towards learning. And then alongside that, of course, we've got that developing as a thinker in terms of those thinking skills. So yeah. kind of, almost sort of being able to, uh, from a young age, being able to think differently, being able to, th to problem solve, being able to, to think outside the box as well, 
that yeah. actually it's key, of course, that young children within the early years get those opportunities because actually that makes a difference to brain development as well. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Would that be okay? Yeah, and it's it's quite simple stuff. It's um, if if you think about children and and their ability to problem solve in a lot of um, situations, the the methods that they use have been laid down in advance by the adult. So if you're solving a maths problem in school, you'll know you have to do this to it, you have to do that to it. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's convergent thinking for uh, solving problems using a logical series of steps, and it's something that's very important for us. But the trouble is life itself isn't convergent, life's divergent. And that means life is going to throw you a curveball. It's going to it's going to change the variables at the last minute and you have to adapt. And our ability to adapt is intrinsically linked to our ability to think divergently. Divergent thinking is just solving problems, but with multiple solutions and creative solutions. And in early years, it's, it's all based on that early exploration of the world that when we limit it, to, oh, you know, you can't move that from the home corner. That has to stay there. Or, no, that's not supposed to be used for that. And that's what we do as adults. We limit that exploration. Then that's leading the child down a much more um, convergent path than a divergent. Where children in early years are encouraged to explore and investigate and experiment, not how the adults told them, but on their terms, then that is a much more powerful mindset because that's teaching them that they can actually see multiple solutions to a problem, that they can see possibilities in the world rather than just that's only supposed to be used for that. I mean, let's be honest, if, if nobody used stuff for what it wasn't supposed to be used for, we'd never have invented fire or the wheel or Marmite. I mean, Marmite's bizarre stuff, if you think about it. For thousands of years, Marmite has been a byproduct of the brewing industry. And at some point, some weirdo has just looked at it and gone, that'll be nice on toast, this black mold. <laughs> and now, you know, thousands of people eat the stuff. And mm -hmm. that's divergent thinking. Nobody said to him, yeah. no, you're not supposed to use that manky black stuff on toast. So, you know, I mean, that's a silly example, but that's how humanity progresses. Mm. It's, that's how, it's how we invent it, isn't it? Somebody it, it, because... at saying, that's not supposed to be used for that, but I'm going to do it anyway. And, and yeah. that's what we're crushing in our children when we constantly say, no, that's for that, that's for that. No, don't move that. Children need to be able to freely transport within a setting. And even, yes, that makes more tidying up afterwards, but it means that they can explore and experiment. And that's when they become more divergent thinkers because they're exploring their environment on their terms. Um, and I think that's really important. When you get, see that done right, if you go into a nursery setting where children are freely exploring, the atmosphere, the vibrancy of those children is unbelievable. Um, I, did, I did have a weird opportunity to work in two identical schools once with the same architect. And both schools very good, um, but the reception class from each school had an outdoor area and in one it was tarmac area with like little tykes stuff mm. and and bikes and you know stuff and there was nothing wrong with that it was, it was amazing the children had a fantastic time whizzing around but the other one it was all open-ended resources there were sticks and crates and mud and they got free access to water which was awesome and best thing of all the bucket had a hole in it and i don't know if that was deliberate or whether that was just a happy coincidence but the children had to problem solve every time they wanted to cart the water from there to the <laughs> hole they'd done and you, the children looked, the exact same age of children looked older in terms of their interactions and their social skills in the setting that had just got that freedom to explore yeah. in the environment. So nothing wrong with the bikes and trikes. I love a bit of bikes and trikes, but actually in the environment where it was all about moving sticks and crates and half pipes and using water and sand and, you know, creating freely, the, the children, it was like different children. Absolutely yeah. incredible. I can believe it completely. Yeah, what, a, what an interesting situation. That doesn't happen very often, does it? You know, two completely yeah. identical settings to yeah. then be able to compare like that is very interesting, isn't it? 
Yeah, the frightening thing is that one of them's very, because uh, they're new builds. So one of mm. them is it's a very established estate. So you drive in and you, you're surrounded by houses. The other one, there's, they're still building. So if you forget which school you're in and you come out and you think you're in some kind of zombie apocalypse because all of all these houses have gone and there's all like half built things and ditches. And it's, yeah, it just, because my brain doesn't really focus on stuff like that. So I forget <laughs> it's all in it. And I come out and go, what? And then I remember, oh yeah, yeah, not zombie apocalypse. Which is good. Which is yeah. good. Um, final thing that I wanted to, to talk to you about, which I think is the, uh, for me, is the most powerful thing. I mean, we've talked about so many things that are all incredibly important and incredibly powerful in terms of the importance of early years education and in terms of the importance of the role of early years teachers and practitioners. Um, but for me, the, the absolute kind of cherry on the cake, if you like, is genetics. And this to me, when I heard you talking about this, I was thinking, crikey, that is amazing. Um, could you tell us about the, the impact on genetics of early years education? Well, this is something, and I'm not a geneticist, but no. this is something that um, I, I've discovered um, quite by accident, actually. I was listening to um, a comedy show on Radio 4, and um, this guy called Rob Newman, who does <laughs> almost like, comedy neuroscience so that older people will remember rob newman because he was in the mary whitehouse experience yes, and he got very very I famous he became like rock star status mm. but he, he hated it apparently and he, he didn't like the attention and and now he does these incredibly intelligent well thought out um kind of uh, radio four programs about philosophy and 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 neuroscience and and e evolution and all sorts so he, he just this one little snippet that he that he shared and i thought now that sounds incredible. So I started to look into it and I mean, it is, it sounds very simple. I'm guessing it really isn't, but what we're looking at in terms of genetics for, for years now, I've, I've assumed that genetics was set in stone. So as somebody who works with children, genetics isn't really that important to us because we can't change the fundamental genetic code of our children. You know, the molecules of DNA that are passed on from our parents to, you know, to our children. But it, it turns out that for 32 years of working with children, I've been completely wrong because it turns out you can actually alter your children's DNA. And there's a new study of genetics called epigenetics. Um, and it turns out that experiences of childhood, early childhood, can switch on and off the markers in the DNA, which is then passed on to the next generation. So your early years environment is of course helping that child in the short term, it's helping that child for the rest of their life, but it's also potentially helping the unborn children of the child that you're working with. So if you're an early years worker, your impact isn't just on the child that you're working with. If you give enough positive experiences that it fundamentally switches off the marks in the DNA for high cortisol production, for instance, which is a stress hormone, when that child has a baby, the baby has better prospects for mental health and emotional well-being from the genetic level because the work that was done with their parent. I mean, is that's the most humbling and and just amazing thing I've ever heard about early years. And, and not only, uh, is it just one generation? Studies in rats have shown that nurturing environments have an impact on two generations of rats, which means the next time you work with children, if you're an early years worker, you could be potentially helping the unborn grandchildren of the children that you're working with. I mean, if that's just, if that doesn't deserve a pay rise, I don't know what else does. And then this is the problem. We've got early years workers on minimum wage, yet they have more impact on a child than anybody else, any yeah. other teacher that child will ever have. And we, yeah. we're treated like glorified babysitters. Uh, oh, you just play with children, that whole you know, chestnut. And I think 
if people realize the, the impact of an early years worker and how important it is that we get passionate, enthusiastic, well-trained, well-qualified early years workers who are paid a proper wage, um, it would transform society. It, yeah, it, would, absolutely. it would absolutely completely transform our society from, from the genetic level. You know, yeah. humanity would be a better species if we got early years right for every single child. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah that is, that's the, the most humbling and amazing. It thing is, it's absolutely know. incredible because I, I think as well, we often talk about, you know, people say that, you know, they, uh, as an early years teacher, one of the things that you really, we really enjoy about doing it is that we're almost like a kind of have you ever heard that phrase people use where they say it's like having like a using a message in a bottle but to a time that you're not going to see yourself you know no, that kind I, of idea no, no, that, no, no, which, but yeah just you know that kind of you know this child will grow up of course to be an adult and you yeah. we won't see that time necessarily yeah. you know well, i'll be long gone by that point but you know kind of what the impact of you on that child will mean that you yeah. know a future generation will benefit from the work that you have put in. So it's a message yeah. in a bottle to a time that, that you yeah. won't see. Um, but of course, the genetic side of it means that, that actually it's not just a message in a bottle that's going to go so far. It's actually going to go a long, 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 long way, you know, potentially yeah. two generations. That, and that's, yeah, I mean, it's mind blowing anyway. But then to add another generation onto it, the potential of that, I think, is, is incredible. Absolutely yeah. incredible. Um, ben, it has been wonderful to speak to you. I've really, really enjoyed chatting to you. Um, really interesting conversation, um, all about, of course, the importance of, of early years education and, of course, the importance of, of the work that we do as early as teachers, as early as practitioners. And, and we do need to keep banging that drum, don't we? You know, it, it's, yeah. it's not said enough, really, the importance of early years education. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, Ben is going to be coming to talk to us at Early Excellence uh, and to, well, to talk for you people at Early Excellence. Um, he's delivering a face-to-face -face conference for us on Wednesday, the 29th of March. And so, Ben, we are looking forward to having you. Um, it's a full-day conference, isn't it? A full-day uh, session um, over at uh, the Early Excellence Centre in Huddersfield. Uh, so that's from 9.30 through to 3.30 at the Early Excellence Centre in Huddersfield on the 29th of March um, and then the following day which is Thursday the 30th of March a live webinar You're, we're going to keep you busy then yes yeah yes um, so um, a Thursday the 30th of March a live webinar and a pre a pre-order or you can pre-order the recording of that particular webinar which will be available um, to then watch and listen to from Monday the 3rd of April I think that's yeah. all of the information that I've been told to make sure that I share. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, if people want to know more, there's more information on the Early Excellence website. So earlyexcellence.com. And we will put a link in the podcast information so that you can click straight on it and go straight to it. OK, Ben, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to speak to you and chat to you this morning. Thank you ever so much. Yeah, you as well. And um, yeah, great to, to talk to you. In fact, we could have gone on all day, couldn't we? But, oh, so. easily. <laughs> Very easily. There you go. That's about it for this week. Thank you very much to Ben for joining us on this week's episode of the podcast and also to you people as well for listening along too. Um, have a great week, everybody, and we will see you next week. Mm -hmm.